Well, the Gospel of Luke has been choosing our text. That is, I haven't just kind of come up with them. We've been working through this Gospel section by section. And this morning's section, which Ian already read, the first part of that, invites two questions. It invites two questions. Who is he and who are you? And we're going to think about that for just a few minutes. The first question, who is he, has been stirring for nine chapters in this gospel. And it's taken until this moment in chapter 9 to get plainly asked and answered. And, and the question comes, if you'll notice in our text, that it comes at a moment of prayer. Jesus was with his disciples praying. And, and I, I might mention that because almost nothing important in the gospel of Luke happens apart from prayer. Those important things are accomplished in prayer, and you can see that over and over. And now Jesus asks the question, and, and uh, he is also the one who must provide what's needed to answer it. So why does Jesus ask the question, who do you say, who do men say that I am, or who do people say that I am, at this particular junction, juncture in our text? Well, it's not to satisfy just his curiosity. He asks the question, for the benefit of the disciples. It's time for them to go deeper in their understanding about who He is. And the answers to the first question about who people say that Jesus is prep the conversation, and you might recall, some say, well, John the Baptist. Some say, Elijah. Some say, well, maybe he's one of the great prophets of old. Then he asks this second question to the disciples directly. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, often the spokesperson, steps up. And our text specifically says it this way. But what about you, he asks, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, and the phrase exactly from the NIV that Ian already shared, God's Messiah. In other words, you are the Christ, God's anointed one, God's liberating king. I want to suggest to you that when Peter answers this way, he is saying more than he knows. And the proof of that is that later he denies Jesus. And if we cheated a little bit and used Matthew's account, we realize that Peter didn't say this on his own. Matthew adds an additional thought that said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So I want to suggest at the outset that when we make our good confession of faith, 
when we make our confession at our baptism, when we make a confession during the Lord's Supper as we just shared together, number one, we're likely saying much more than we could ever understand, just like Peter. And number two, can any of us make that confession apart from the fact that it's been revealed to us by God? And then I might suggest that when we're making that confession, we're implicating our lives far more than we realize. So there's two questions. Who is he and who are you? And Peter gives the perfect answer. It's right on point. And I would suggest his answer is a little bit like Einstein asking this. Can you tell me what the theory of relativity is? And someone might say, well, it's E equals MC squared. And then we might say, well, what does that mean? And you would say, well... I mean, E, I think that's energy. Hmm. Well, I know it might have something to do with atomic theory, but what do I really understand about it? What could I explain about it? Basically, not all that much. Anybody want to take a shot at trying to explain it this morning? And I think when Peter made his confession, and he said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, it was much like that. That Jesus is the ultimate king, as Jeremy said earlier, that would, but that I suppose that Peter's probably thinking that would lead the Jewish people to glory, and his reign would launch this time of superabundance, as the prophets had, had seemed to predict, and maybe it would free the nation from domination, or maybe free the people of Israel to reign over the entire world, because it's a big title to be the Messiah. What's it mean to Peter? E is equal to MC squared. And this is why, because of this incongruence between what Peter answers and what he really understood, what any of the disciples understood, that Jesus says in verse 21, why don't we just keep quiet about it for right now? Because what they said and what they meant were world apart. And so he explains in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And I want you to see what is highlighted here. It's a shorthand formula that's repeated throughout the Bible, and it includes these things, suffering. And so we think, for those of us who have been around a while and understand our Old Testament, we might remember the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. 
and to be rejected. And we might think back, and maybe the disciples even could have understood this tie at the moment of those Old Testament predictions that Israel and her leaders would be rejected by the Messiah, Psalm 118 and verse 22. And that he must be killed. And that would have been very, very confusing because this would have indicated the limits to this revolution that was going on and was going so well. And so it would have been very, extremely hard to process. And then to be raised again, what did that mean? That would be unexplained because the only way, even our text is the way it's written in, in, in the original language would indicate that it's just something that, that is unexplainable that God must do. You see, Jesus had a whole series of victories in Galilee, and He had shut down His critics with brilliant logic, and thousands of people were being healed, and more were coming, and the Word was spreading, and His teaching was magnetic, and it was fresh, and it was transformative, and the disciples were just catching on. He had sent them out, and they'd done some good things, and they were returning to learn more, and now this... This whole thing about marching into Jerusalem and it's going to end in death. And you know, this really begins to set the stage for the rest of the Gospel of Luke. We're only in chapter 9. But the rest of the Gospel of Luke is this march or parade to Jerusalem. To follow this Jesus, the Messiah, he's telling these disciples, is to choose the way of suffering and rejection. And suddenly they're thinking, E is equal to MC squared. I'm lost. Now there's one more phenomenal turn in this story. We haven't read these verses yet, but I want you to see this because this is where I really believe that it begins to implicate us in our identity as we begin to understand the Messiah. As we answer this question, who is he, to name the true identity of Jesus is to then give definition to your own identity. And I want to suggest this morning to give name his identity as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is, is if people will stop and think about it, is a question that will force every human being on the face of the planet to think about their identity. And so there is this move from Jesus to you and me, from his identity to our identity, and it all happens in this very text, so I want us to go through it together, and I believe that you might want to pull out your, out your phone and take a picture of these so you can think about them. Maybe if you're in a small group this week, you'll get a chance and that an opportunity there, but here are some very important questions where Jesus says, identity implicates our identity. The first one is this. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself 
themselves and take up their cross and follow me daily. And I have to imagine that those disciples were saying, what have we gotten ourselves into? To die daily, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. To no longer live for ourselves, but for him. E equals MC squared. We better pray. And then he suggests to them, as he is drawing his disciples in, to what's going to happen to him, and they're going to share in this. Three, can I get three fingers up here? Three trades. And I've defined those this morning as three very tempting but horrible trades. And I'm not talking about buying cryptocurrency, okay? Here they are. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. I think in essence, he is saying, Jesus is saying this to his disciples after sharing all this stuff about him having to suffer and be rejected and die. Trading away, which is their temptation at this point, the agenda of Jesus for your agenda is a certain loss. To live by your own agenda rather than by Jesus's, the house is going to win. The house will wipe you out to use a gambling term, to be unable to risk your comfort and safety for your obedience to Jesus is the tragedy. And we must realize that God has a different definition of safety for us than we often have for ourselves. Whose will is going to prevail? And there should be, at this point, a wrestling in our hearts. In our spirit, like the man in Mark chapter 10, who said, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The second trait is this, verse 24. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Here's the trade, a very horrible trade as well. Trading your deepest self, your soul, for all the good things life offers is a ripoff. That's what Jesus is telling us. And you can have a lot, and we're told over and over by the culture around us that we can have it all, and Jesus says, I don't think so. You can't have it all. 
when we have it all, we lose our compass. We lose our bearings. We lose the deepest truth of all that we are not in control. He owns our soul. To gain a ton of things and lose the most important thing is not in your best interest. And so he continues, because this is hard teaching. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I believe when he says, whoever is ashamed of me is actually a reference back to chapter 9 and verse 23 when he is talking about the fact that you need to carry a cross like he carries a cross. You see, this was the most shameful death imaginable at that time. The Romans had made crucifixion into an art form. And it had two goals, maximum pain and maximum shame. It was insulting. They insulted him. They ridiculed him. And they asked the person that was going to the cross to carry it high enough for others to see the shame. There was a scourging and a stripping and a nakedness and an embarrassment, and a posting a sign of their crimes by the one that was hanging there, mocking them while on the cross, while they are left to writhe in pain and rot in death. I repeat all that, it's gruesome, for the simple fact that it is a scene of shame. And so what's being implicated here is that not only the way of Jesus, but this is the way of anyone who will come after him. We might ask again, why would anyone come after him? And yet, we know the cost of the horrible trades. And so we're to take up our instrument of execution to join this parade of shame. And I understand. I believe it's gotten harder to be a Christian in our culture for many, many reasons. Many of which are, I would say, self-inflicted by those who call themselves Christians. But here's the point. Do you or are you willing to be associated with the foolishness of the cross? Will you draw the meaning of your life from what Jesus is teaching?
He's going to be the judge at the end of time. It's made clear in several passages in the Gospel of Luke. It's made clear in the sec- his second volume in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, and again in Acts chapter 17. And it's stated very clearly here that if you don't want to be a part of his life, he will allow you not to be. He will not accept you. Your exclusion, this text suggests, from those who belong to him will be a public exclusion. It will be obvious to all. It's a book recently written. I haven't actually read the book, but I thought the title was interesting. By Kevin Burgess called Dangerous Jesus. And he says in the subtitle of the book, why the only thing more risky than getting Jesus right is getting Jesus wrong. And sometimes all that we know about getting Jesus right are the very, very basics. E equals MC squared. And that is our starting point for going with him and trusting Him, and following Him. And so our passage leads us to realize this. To follow Jesus is extremely dangerous. And to not follow Him is more dangerous still. Who is he, and who are you? The great questions of the ages awaiting our answer.